Gavin, don't give me that. The BBC would kill for those kinds of ratings. Yes. The following podcast contains... You cannot say filth, flying filth, flying filth in front of people. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you gave the guy who lives in the guest house the primetime special, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host Dave Bledsoe and this is episode number 410, Everything's Coming Up Cato edition of the show, part two of Wheezing the Juice, where we talk about the mania that swept the nation after OJ committed that brutal double murder. Stay tuned. What the Hell We Think of Podcast is brought to you by Roomies, the house sharing service that specializes in placing sketchy people with you, a sketchy person, in your sketchy home. Are you looking to cut costs by splitting the rent with someone? Are you finding it hard to find the right fit for your room share situation? Look no further than Roomies. Roomies finds sketchy renters for sketchy leaseholders. Are you a middle-aged man who's never married and gives off kind of a creepy vibe? Roomies will find someone just like you. Are you a serious drug dealer in need of someone willing to tolerate strangers coming in and out at all hours? Roomies can find someone with a serious drug problem who will fit just fine. Not allowed to live within five miles of an elementary school? Roomies can find someone on the same list as you. It's a match made in heaven. When Craigslist can't find someone as dubious as you, Roomies comes through. Now they have picked up the white Bronco on the 5 freeway. We, the vehicle is driving about 20 or so miles an hour. The driver of the vehicle was on the cellular phone. We believe that the passenger is O.J. Simpson. That's what we heard on the Orange County frequencies. And right now we're up at about 1,000 feet. And they are attempting to pull the vehicle over. They've made contact via cellular phone, also on a public address system. Unfortunately, at this time, it does not appear as though the uh, driver is slowing down or, or complying with the orders of the officers. Go ahead. Perhaps one of the reasons that they are not uh, taking any more aggressive action and moving in on that car, we are told right now that O.J. sitting there in the passenger seat with a gun pointed at his own head. Having heard O.J. on TV quite a bit and so forth, he was somewhat slurred. His voice was slurred, almost like he was on drugs or something. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, we he, he wasn't. He was talking, but it wasn't clear. Well, his doctors have said that he's been under sedation since... And uh, he may be well taken, you know, the pills, but, I mean, he doesn't sound irrational, but he, he convinced me on the phone that he's not playing games. Us old, and yes, them middle-aged people love to tell you where they were when some famous historical event happened like, oh, I don't know, September 11th. Goddamn millennials. Oh, I hear you millennials protesting see that right now, but... I got some news for you. Stop it! You're middle-aged! I, as a Gen Xer, have my own historical event, the Challenger Disaster, see episode number 279. Oh, just just keep plugging away, huh? But the big one I remember is where I was when it happened. So, how about that Bronco chase, huh? Oh, yeah. I mean, it is seared in my memory, unlike so much else of my early 20s. I was in my dorm room getting ready to work that night, so I was sober. I was ironing a uniform and watching the TV when suddenly every fucking channel on the air shifted the footage of a white Ford Bronco slowly motoring down the interstate with a wall of California Highway Patrol cars behind it. Now at first, I assumed it was just another car chase. 
Which, if you've never lived in California, you won't understand that. Freeway chases were, and presumably are, big news in California. We have Kevin Takumi. He often flies in Skyfox and covers these pursuits for us uh, on the line with us tonight. Kevin, what do you make of this? We've seen the speeds uh, far exceed 100 miles per hour. Yeah, you can see it. It's been crazy back and forth here throughout this pursuit. The speeds upwards uh, above 85, 94 miles an hour here, going up to 100 at some point. You can see we're just getting through southbound on the 605. And that was recorded this week. For reasons I've never really understood that well. I guess it's because the city of Los Angeles is covered by freeways, and statistically there are more high-speed chases there than anywhere else in the U.S. just based on population and square mileage of roads. Which would make you think that they would become boring and pretty much ignored. But you would be wrong. Every channel will switch over to Live Chopper 69 and follow some dipshit driving insanely fast down the interstate with a dozen cops on their tail. Where are the criminals going? Do they think they can get away? Don't they know the LAPD is going to beat the shit out of them when they stop? That's the reason. Oh, yeah. yeah. Good point there. Anyway, when a chase starts in California, so they stop whatever they're doing and watch every fucking second of it, which usually lasts about 15 minutes before the people running away crash their car into concrete barriers and die. It's fun for the whole family. But this was not your run-of-the-mill freeway chase. For one thing, they were obeying the speed limit, which is an odd thing to do if you want to get away from the cops. And it didn't take long for me to glean the person inside of that Bronco was none other than Orenthal James Simpson, who recently had murdered his wife and her friend. Allegedly. Well, I guess at the time we had to say that, but uh, like I said last week, we all knew. Yeah, I didn't give a fuck about OJ, but there was something mesmerizing about that big white Ford motoring down the highway at 30, 40 miles an hour with all those black and whites behind it that just made me watch. Which brings us to this week's wheezing of the juice topic, OJ Mania. If you were alive and beyond the level of drooling in your fist in 1994-1995, you were aware of the OJ Simpson case, and you probably watched it on television. You have no choice. As I said, I was aware of the murders, and that suspicion was falling on OJ because people kind of thought maybe he was the dude that did them. Yeah, because he did. But I wasn't on board the OJ train. Why would I be? I didn't watch football, and Nordberg wasn't that big of a character in The Naked Gun. How well do you know Nordberg? Clearly not as well as I thought. And so while, yes, I'm morally opposed to brutal murders, I just didn't give a shit about this particular one. That all changed June 17th, 1994, when 95 million people, five more million that watched the actual Super Bowl that year, watched Al A.C. Cowling, O.J.'s friend since high school, drive his white Ford Bronco, Oh, no, that was AC's Bronco, not OJ's. OJ's was by the cops because it was filled with blood. AC had one because OJ had one, and, well... They do everything together. Except, you know, AC didn't kill nobody. Now, without getting into the weeds on the evidence, because that's for next week's show, the LAPD had investigated and decided... You do know that OJ was guilty, right? The L.A. District Attorney's Office got on the phone with Robert Shapiro, O.J.'s lawyer on the case, and told Shapiro that OJ really needed to turn himself in. At the time, cops had no idea where O.J. was, which was a house in San, the San Fernando Valley, probably belonging to Robert Kardashian. After having a chat with O.J., Shapiro tells the cops that, yeah, you know, we'll be at headquarters and surrender at 11 a.m. sharp. Problem was, when it came time for everyone to get in the car and head downtown... Has anyone seen... No, O.J. 
Everyone was waiting. The cops, the DA, the press, and 11 a.m. comes around and goes right on past. And there's no sign of the juice. This is about the time things start to get tense because after bending over backwards to be nice to a guy they had good evidence to believe brutally murdered two human beings, this fucking guy goes and makes them look like morons. Mr. Simpson has not appeared. The Los Angeles Police Department right now is actively searching for Mr. Simpson. The Los Angeles Police Department is also very unhappy with the activities surrounding his failure to surrender. Needless to say, when the cops did arrive at the hideout, uh, I mean the house where OJ had been staying to avoid the press, they, they had some hard questions. All right, what well, did you look everywhere? And Robert Shapiro was like, yeah, I've looked everywhere. Bathroom, closet, even behind the couch, he likes to hide there sometimes. But yeah, we looked everywhere. And then someone is like, hey, is a, has anyone seen AC? He's gone too. What? That's when the cops started putting two and two together and suspected that maybe AC and OJ were on the run. As the afternoon dragged on, more and more people started tuning into the news as the story went from serious to silly pretty goddamn quick. At 5 p.m., Robert Shapiro called his own press conference in which he read what was claimed to be a suicide note from O.J. As quoted from the L.A. Times, quote, During which longtime Simpson friends Robert Kardashian read a letter from Simpson saying, Don't feel sorry for me. The note ends, I've had a great life, great friends. Please think of the real O.J. and not this lost person. Thanks for making my life special. I hope I helped yours. Peace and love, O.J., unquote. The full text of the letter is available, and it's a ramble full of uh, denying wrongdoing, blaming the media, and saying goodbye to his golfing buddies, and finishing with, I'm not making this up, love, O.J., and in the O.J., O was a smiley face. <laughs> At around 6 p.m., O.J. makes a call from his cellular phone. Why are you on a cellular phone? Oh, this was a huge break for the nascent cell phone industry. Before the Bronco chase, most Americans couldn't conceive of a reason why they would ever need an outside phone. But here was this practical ap application. Within a few years, everyone had one. Not just famous ex-football players who stabbed their wife and his friend to death in a bloody frenzy of violence. This is a huge break for us. And even in 1994... We could still get the location of a, uh, from the data from a cell phone call. And that led cops to their first clue of where in the world was O.J. Simpson. Turns out he was on the five in Orange County, not far from where the wife that he had recently stabbed 12 times, causing her to bleed to death, had been recently buried. A few minutes later, CHP was on his tail, and the long, slow chase through L.A. County began. And that's when shit started to get weird. Because the people of Los Angeles begun to show up. They would line the overpasses and pull over to the side of the freeway as the cops and OJ motored past and cheer for the Bronco as it passed them. A Fox Sports look back reports the chase from the perspective of one of the officers in the gaggle of cars following the Bronco. Quote, we have pursuits that are often well in excess of 100 miles an hour, but we do have pursuits, pursuits kind of like that, where the driver's under the influence, they're contemplating what to do next, and they may be driving slower. They may even use their turn signals and make turn to make turns, Poole said. You see all sorts of bizarre things happen as a police officer in a pursuit, but there had been nothing like this in the history of the world prior. 
I knew it was on TV, but I had no idea that it was being broadcast across the nation, Sewell said. I thought it was, you know, Channel 2 that, like, had it on. So I had no idea people were going to start lining up on overpasses, stopping the cars on the freeway and getting out in front of us and everything else, he continued. People were holding signs that said, run, OJ, run, climbing up on their cars so they could see us. And as we went by, it was surreal. It was the strangest thing I'd ever been involved in, unquote. The chase would go on for hours before finally returning back to OJ's house in Brentwood, where police surrounded the house and the vehicle and began negotiating with OJ, who had allegedly been holding a gun to his head throughout the entire event. As helicopters, police choppers, and news helicopters hovered overhead, they eventually managed to talk OJ into surrendering them, and OJ's run of his life was finally over. It should be noted, I guess, that uh, AC's Bronco, with with them uh, were uh, several of OJ's passports, uh, changes of clothes, $8,000 in cash, and uh, a fake beard and a wig. So, you know, do with that whole grief-suicide thing what you will. This was just the beginning of something that would consume our national attention for the next year and a half. Week, a week after the chase, none other than the king of all media, Howard Stern, appeared on The Late Show with David Letterman wearing a shirt with OJ's face on it and calling out Dave for not doing OJ jokes. And credit to Letterman, who replied to Howard Stern, well, I guess I just don't find double homicide as amusing as I used to. Oh, snap! Needless to say... Jay Leno had no such reservations. Hello and welcome to Tonight Show Exclusive. We're talking today with former running back and current double murderer, O.J. Simpson. <laughs> O.J., it's been a few years since you've killed anyone. Why did you stop? The mall said I had to give it up. And SNL's Norm MacDonald made every weekend update an O.J. update. By the way, you can now purchase a bronze statue of the juice for only $3,395. And for an even five grand, you can buy one that Al Cowlings has kissed the ass of. To the point where Norm had beat the joke to death so much that he got fired for being unfunny from SNL, which is really hard to do. Over the coming months, Leno in particular would milk every ounce of the Simpson trial for shitty content. His monologue jokes included introducing the world to one of the enduring images of the OJ era. If you couldn't make out that, it was the dancing Edos in which a group of men, white men mostly, would dress in black robes and jazz hand with a dancer who resembled prosecutor March Clark. Cool. Of course, the trial was at the beginning of the desktop PC age, but still too early for internet content. But never fear, CNN put out a CD-ROM called The People vs. O.J. Simpson, an interactive companion to the O.J. Simpson trial. He was meant to serve as a primer on the trial, one of his producers says, and includes everything you need to go going into it. According to an archive CNN insight, quote, Wofill and the gang again went to their traditional television media until mid-1994 mid when they were gearing up to do the next time capsule. About that time, Wofill said Intermedia Sports, Sports in Atlanta was experimenting with the notion of using templates to create instant CD-ROMs. With the O.J. Simpson trial starting in October, we thought, let's build a primer. Everything you need to know going into it. Complete in only five weeks, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, an interactive companion of the O.J. Simpson trial, was released September 14, 1994. While we definitely weren't pushing the technological barriers absorbed Woyful, it was interesting to see how fast we could, we could do a CD-ROM and it'd still be news, unquote. But wait, there's more! 
from Vulture.com, quote, CBS airs a Murphy Brown episode called Where Have You Gone, Joe DiMaggio, that centers on an astronaut who kills his brother and leads police on a Simpson-like chase. CBS also airs a Love and War episode called A Nation Turns Its Lonely Eyes to You, in which the show's character or characters are distracted by media coverage of the crime from the preceding Murphy Brown episode. NBC airs The Big Salad a Seinfeld episode that ends with Kramer leading police on a low-speed chase down the New Jersey turnpike. He's driving a white Bronco, and his passenger is an ex-major league pitcher suspected of killing his dry cleaner. Footage from the actual OJ chase is used, unquote. You've got to be shitting me. I hear you asking. Dave, it all sounds pretty bad. So how could it possibly be any worse? Well, if you really want to know... We have a surprise for you. What about white people in blackface? From the LA Times, quote, Call it bad taste or just plain gross. But one of the hottest selling Halloween items in the country is a mask bearing the likeness of accused killer O.J. Simpson. At costume outlets in Los Angeles, early shoppers were combining the mask with other props suggesting the elements of the celebrated double murder case. Short Afro wigs patterned after Simpsons hairstyle were selling briskly, says Ron Eade, a co-owner of Junk for Joy, a Halloween shop in Burbank. It's going to be one of the hottest characters, that's for sure. Eade said, adding that blonde wigs are likely to be hot items too because women want to dress as murder victim Nicole Brown Simpson, unquote. It'll get a bucket I'm going to throw up. Oh, and Playboy, they had to bite off a chunk of the coverage by releasing a video film just a month before O.J. murdered, titled O.J. Simpson, Minimum Maintenance Fitness for Men. Hi, I'm O.J. Simpson. Now, you may know me as a sportscaster, a commercial pitchman, or an actor, but I also played some pro football a while back, but that was a couple of years ago, a couple of good knees ago, and a couple of million frequent flyer miles ago, but fortunately, not a few pounds ago. That's what I'm here for to remind you that we're not the same body type that we used to be. If you don't believe me, just go into your closet, take out those old jeans you got hanging in there, and try to put those on. <laughs> so I guess now we know how O.J. was stay, able to stay so limber that he could do things like climb over fences in order to mercilessly murder Nicole and Ron. And keep in mind, this was all before the trial even started. Yeah, we're 20 minutes in and we haven't even got to the most important part. In November of 1994, Judge Ito informed the world that cameras would be allowed in the courtroom. And the reaction to that news was intense in the media. Yes! Oh! Yes! 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 Oh! 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 Oh, God. Looking back, I cannot imagine what the fuck the prosecutors were thinking going along with this, but according to the New York Times, quote, Marsha Clark, the chief prosecutor, said cameras provided the best way to refute unfounded rumors and wild speculative theories and would enable the world to see what the jury sees. One of Mr. Simpson's lawyers, Robert L. Shapiro, also urged the trial be televised, but only if the prize for it was not a sequestered jury. For Mr. Simpson to have a life after this case will require the American public to have an understanding that his acquittal was based on evidence presented in the courtroom, not on evidence that was in some way manipulated by lawyers or was excluded based on legal technicalities. Unquote. <laughs> oh, Bobby Shapiro. He's a funny motherfucker, right? It was, and so it was, that a trial 
There was already a shitstorm of rapid commercialization, media saturation, and utter contempt for the criminal justice system. The victims' families, more than anything else, the victims of the crime, would be televised gavel to gavel every single fucking day for the entire duration of the trial, and the American people would be glued to every single fucking minute of it. Think of the ratings. Oh my God, they did. Oh, actually, I left out one victim that I really should mention. This trial decimated daytime soaps. I mean, why would America watch a fake drama when they had the real fucking deal to tune into instead? Now, lest you think this was rough on everybody, there was one guy who wasn't a victim. Because you know who made out pretty well from this? Through no real fault or effort of his own. Famous house guest, Kittle Caitlin. I mean, I'm not saying that it was a great time for Cato, but you got to admit, of all the people involved, he uh, he he came out the best. He's the laughing stock of the community. Yeah, but he was a well-paid laughing stock. Bernard Gerard Kalin, for that's Cato's real name. He was uh, named Cato after Bruce Lee's character on the Green Hornet, despite him not uh, not even Asian. After majoring in Kegger studies in his home state of Wisconsin, Cato moved to Hollywood to pursue the dream that so many young men with incredible hair and generic good looks chase. I'm gonna be a star. Only to find himself where so many men with incredible hair and generic good looks wind up, living in the slightly in the guest house of a slightly more famous person. It's a Southern California thing. And I thought it was a joke until several friends who gave L.A. a shot before giving up and moving back to New York City told me that guys like Cato are practically assigned to actors when they land on the D-list. The moment they find themselves with that status, Hollywood comes along and they're like, uh, Here's your guy. And now they got some dude that just lives in their guest house or their pool house or whatever the fuck connected property to the place where they live. I mean, he's not a roommate. He's just a guy that lives on the property they live on and does stuff with them like workout, hit bars, share drugs, and maybe be an alibi if you murder your wife. Cato was Nicole's friend as well, but I guess OJ got him in the divorce. Cato had originally lived with Nicole, but OJ didn't think that was appropriate. And rather than stab Cato a few dozen times, he had him move in with him. Vanity Fair said of Cato in 2014, quote, Cato Kalen, of course, the face of the trial, or at least the hair. Everybody's favorite himbo house guest, maybe not the swiftest guy on the block, but cute as a bug with a nice way about him. Cato was a joke, certainly the butt of enough of them. The National Society of Newspaper Colonists bestowed upon him that year's Sitting Duck Award, but the public also couldn't get enough. According to one poll conducted at the time, 74% of Americans could identify him. Only 25% could identify Vice President Al Gore. He was on Fox's Celebrity Boot Camp with Coolio, Tiffany, Lorenzo Lamas, and one half of Millie Vanilli. He was on Reality Bites Back, a reality parody show on Comedy Central, and on Fox's reality channel, Give Me My Reality Show, a competition among reality stars for, you guessed it, yet another reality show, House Guest, in which he would be in every episode showing up at different famous people's doors and asking to crash for a while. Yeah, it was developed, but amazingly, it was never picked up. Recently, he's partnered with Rhonda Shear, creator of Abra, to release Kato's Potato Pajamas, a pocket for remote with a pocket for remote controls and another for a bag of Doritos sewn into every pair. Unquote. And of course, Kato didn't really need to work. He won a $15 million lawsuit settlement against the National Examiner tabloid, which had ran a shirtless photo of Kato with a headline that basically said, "Hey, maybe Kato did it." And Cato was hardly the only supporting character in all of this. 
According to the Financial Post, quote, a 1-900 chat line set up by Simpsons friend Cowley called Ask AC reportedly netted $300,000 during its first month of operations. Even Simpsons limousine driver Alan Park got his payday, appearing on Trial of the Century theme cruise with tickets that sold for between $500 and $800 apiece, according to the LA Times, unquote. Nicole's friend Faye Resnick cashed in on a book deal, spilling all sorts of tea on Nicole and OJ's relationship. OJ's girlfriend at the time, Parla Barbieri, made headlines for standing by her murderous man. Robert Kardashian, whose longtime friendship with OJ led him to being on his legal team, though it was never quite clear what his job was. And that's why we have the Kardashians today, y'all. A mediocre lawyer was friends with a murderer. I mean, all the lawyers became reality stars, but most famous of them all was Johnny Cochran. Now, Cochran was a longtime fixture in L.A. flashy lawyer scenes, but he was also catnip for the press and leveraged his, uh, let's say, distinct style for airtime. Mate, look, Johnny Cochran won the case for O.J., no matter what the rest of the legal team says. It makes no sense. It doesn't fit. If it doesn't fit, you must acquit. But again... That's the story for next week. That Vanity Fair article really drills down on what made this trial such a disgusting spectacle. Quote, what made the Simpson case reality TV-esque too was the awareness that it wasn't reality, that it was reality at one remove. So intense was the media scrutiny that by the time the trial started, all those who were part of it had grown accustomed to being treated like something scraped onto a microscope's slide. When, but when Judge Lance Ito decided to allow cameras in the courtroom, that sky-high self-consciousness consciousness was sent off into the stratosphere. All of a sudden, the lawyers weren't lawyers. They were lawyers playing lawyers. The judge wasn't a judge. He was a judge playing a judge. Same with the witnesses, the experts, and the, even the victim's loved ones. In other words, these people were both characters in the drama and an observer standing outside the drama, watching themselves be characters in the drama, unquote. And I talked in our preamble show in the series about the other trials of the century and how their long-running obsessions in this strange-ass country. But OJ Mania was the first one that made the big time during the 24-hour cable news era and at the very cusp of the digital age. Media critics chicken or egg the OJ trial. Did the public interest drive the news to make content about the OJ trial? Or did all the content being made drive the public interest in the OJ trial? And the answer depends on who you ask. On the media's Brooke Gladstone, a stalwart of media criticism, told PBS's Frontline a few years later, quote, question, how do the members of the mainstream media feel about covering the story? Answer, I think that even though the mainstream media realized it was going to have to cover the story, this, uh, this story, there was a certain amount of self-consciousness and embarrassment about the fact that they did have to. I think it was July of 1994 that Ted Koppel did a story that was devoted to covering the coverage. There was a certain amount of self-consciousness in that, an awareness that sometimes journalistic standards were not being, if not being outright violated, then muddied a bit. And there was a broad discussion about the appropriateness of this merging of the mainstream and the tabloid media. Question, but that didn't stop the proliferation of it. Answer, no. It couldn't stop it because as long as there was a hunger on the part of the audience and a risk that the rising power of cable news and its special 24-hour format would start to draw eyeballs away from the networks, they were going to have to stay on it. And in fact, that fear was quite legitimate because many eyeballs did migrate to cable and stayed there, unquote. While on the other side of the coin, David Perel, the editor-in-chief of the National Enquirer during the trial, 
felt somewhat differently. Quote, yeah, this was a unique moment because for the first time, the Inquirer found itself covering the same story side by side on a daily basis with the New York Times, the L.A. Times and CNN. And simply because it was a celebrity story, it was a murder story. It was a great national interest. So clearly it fell into the Inquirer's domain of coverage. And also it fell into everybody else's domain of coverage. And it just mushroomed from there. So it really was a unique set of events that brought us all together and pitted us against each other in the race for scoops, unquote. But I think the answer to that question, did the hype create, or did the media create the hype or did the hype create the media coverage, should be familiar to all of you who have been with this show for all these years. Capitalism. Yeah. There was money on the table and the media was not going to fucking walk away from it. A 1995 article in the New York Times tells us, quote, CNN's afternoon ratings for the first three weeks of the Simpson trial covers were 5.1, 5.6, 6.3, far above its 0.7 average for that time period, and the ratings for court TV were even higher, as much as double those of CNN in the 20 million homes that received both CNN and court TV. At the same time, the evening news ratings for ABC, NBC, and CBS have declined collectively, nearly two ratings points from the period of 1994 to an average of 9.4 from 11.3 last year, unquote. Now look, the networks were still the dominant force in all this, and they, but they didn't follow it gavel to gavel like cable did. The tabloids, both magazine and newspaper, took in record profits with their steady stream of dubious stories surrounding the case, and mainstream papers, particularly the LA Times, whose coverage was the guiding star of the other establishment papers followed, saw their subscription and attended ad revenues spike for the duration of the trial and plummet in its aftermath. Much of the slow but steady decline of print journalism can be fairly said to begin post-OJ verdict. The feeding frenzy that was the OJ trial with the harbinger of the media climate we live in today, where the desperate need to churn out content and keep the needles moving drove media organizations to say fuck it to methodical reporting and rely on being first and hope you can just clean up any messes you make in an unread retraction later. But it wasn't just the media and the people involved in the case. Regular ass Americans got in on the capitalism fun too. There were O.J. Pogs. He's back in pod form. If you don't know what Pogs are, well, first of all, take care of your knees. You're going to enjoy them while you have them. And second, they were little round cardboard chits that you played some kind of a game with. I'll do a show on them someday when I'm pretty much desperate for content. And then, of course, there was Squeeze the Juice, the O.J. Simpson trial board game. Get the fuck out of here with that shit. Okay. I assure you, it's real. Board Game Geek describes the Monopoly board, the Monopoly knockoff thusly. Quote, the game where lawyers get rich and justice comes at a hefty price. You have just been selected as one of O.J. Simpson's defense, te- defense attorneys and given an initial retainer of $75,000. Your objective is to gain control of as many aspects of the trial as you can and then utilize this control to accumulate more of O.J.'s defense fund checks than any other other defense attorney, unquote. But don't be mad at capitalism. Capitalism loves you. I would like to wrap up this week by telling you that at least some good came out of all this, that this orgy of commercialism stemming from the senseless murder of a young mother and a young man with his life ahead of him taught us something about ourselves and made us take stock of who we were and where we were as a society. 
You know, I would love to tell you that. And yet I cannot. We, we haven't changed. Indeed, <laughs> we've gotten worse. Look no further than the cable networks running chopper footage of a motorcade of a certain ex-president on his way to be arraigned for serious federal crimes in the circus of shitheads outside the courthouse to see how little we've learned. I guess the only good thing I can say about OJ mania is at least it happened before the rise of social media. I do not want to imagine Twitter, particularly Elon Twitter, being around during the long, dark time of the OJ trial, which is where we will pick up next week for the conclusion of Wheezing the Juice, the insanity of the trial, and why I, too, would have voted to acquit OJ Simpson. That is it for the show this week. It was another long one. And I cut a bunch of shit that I was going to talk about. I mean, I had a bunch of academic articles that I was going to quote about the impact of the trial on our culture. But then I realized that they weren't saying anything that you wouldn't learn by my just telling you about the O.J. Simpson board game. Now, speaking of knowing things you wish you didn't, rate and review this show so others can find us, know about us, and, uh, you know, wish they didn't. If you want to kick us a buck for our pod collection, hit us up at patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast. Got to see if we can... Uh, get you a thank you gift that's just a pog with Gavin's face on it. I think you'll love it. Do all the things Jeremy tells you to do in the closing. Otherwise, he will be forced to show you his mad skill with a pog. He was a child of the 90s, y'all, so don't fuck with him. And so for me, Dave, you'll be swell. You'll be great. Gonna have the whole world on a plate, Bledsoe. Producer, there's finally some real music to close out this god off show. Gavin and all the fictional guys living in our pool house, we want to say blow a kiss, take a bow. Honey, everything's coming up, Kato. That was terrible. And we'll see you all next week. What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. Lewd, lascivious, salacious, outrageous.